Academy for the great privilege of being here this week. Uh, yesterday, uh, I heard Naomi Judd uh, level of rather passionate indictment against the media as the root of, of uh, many evils, if not all evils, uh, which I must say that as someone who's uh, been a journalist, uh, at least for part of my career, it made me cringe a bit. But reflecting on it, I thought, well, maybe there's a, a, a way to help her to understand a bit about the business. And it occurred to me that the story of the world's first brain transplant might be useful. Now, we heard on Wednesday night from one of the world's greatest brain surgeons, so perhaps he could confirm this for us. But the night before the procedure, the doctor went in and said to the patient, congratulations, sir, you're about to have the world's first brain transplant, and you have a choice as to the kind of brain you can get. You can have the brain of a Nobel laureate. That'll cost you $100 an ounce. You can have the brain of a four-star army general. That'll cost you $200 an ounce. Or you can have the brain of a journalist. But that'll cost you $1,000 an ounce. The patient said, $1,000 an ounce? That's outrageous. Why is it so expensive? The doctor said, do you have any idea how many journalists it takes to get an ounce of brain? Well, I uh, can tell that story with some satisfaction because I consider myself a recovering journalist, frankly. Uh, I write mostly about war, which as every scribbler since Thucydides knows, uh, you're really writing about love, valor, venality, uh, the uh, foolishness of fools, the knavery of knaves, the whole great panoply of human behavior, the great pageant of folly and valor. Now some, I must say, look askance at the profession of military historian. It's as if because you're interested in writing about war, you endorse it or you like it. Barry read a poem this morning. I have one of my own to bring to you. It's from the fine Canadian novelist and poet, Margaret Atwood. It's called The Loneliness of the military historian, and it goes like this, the very beginning of it. Confess, it's my profession that alarms you. This is why few people ask me to dinner, though Lord knows I don't go out of my way to be scary. Well, I've written five books. They've all been about war. Uh, yesterday, uh, W.S. Merwin was talking, and, and it was noted that he was active in Poets Against the War. Uh, I don't qualify for that, I'm sorry, because I'm not a poet, but perhaps I could begin an adjunct chapter uh, called Military Historians Against the War, or Military Historians Against War. I think you cannot write about war, as I have for a lifetime, and think anything other than it's the most horrible thing on earth. Uh, why read about war? Why do we care? Isn't it just dead white guys who've been killed mostly by other white guys who are going to themselves be killed, as we see in that wonderful opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan. Walter McDougall, who is a, a very fine historian at the University of Pennsylvania, says that history itself is the only academic subject that inspires humility, much as theology once did. Well, I have to say military history is especially humbling. The, uh, 
the wonderful uh, historian and man of letters, Jacques Barzon, who turned 100 years old last year, said that in, in trying to understand the uh, march of human history, you must account for what he calls the range and wildness of individuality, the pivotal force of trifles, the manifestations of greatness and the failures of unquestioned talent. The failures of unquestioned talent. Well, if there was ever a better definition of men at war, and now women at war, I've never read one. Uh, Congressman Markey yesterday mentioned that uh, the chain of events that led, beginning with climate change, to famine, to disruption in the Horn of Africa, to humanitarian efforts in Somalia, to military intervention by the United States in Somalia, which in turn led to the episode generally known as Black Hawk Down. Now, I am a recovering journalist who occasionally, I admit, falls off the wagon. And I go back uh, to work as a journalist for the Washington Post uh, to, to, to cover war. And I do this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's important if you have the capacity uh, and the willingness to bear witness. That's a lot of what journalists do generally, and bearing witness in war is very important. Second, it also helps to inform my writing as a historian. If you're with a rifle company in uh, Iraq, it's very illuminating about what a rifle company was like on Omaha Beach. Not quite as intense, obviously, but there are a lot of eternal verities. Well, to go back to the Horn of Africa, some of you may remember, most of you students were very young then, what happened was that there were two American Black Hawk helicopters shot down on the night of October 3rd, 1993, and there was then an effort to rescue uh, those who had survived the crash, uh, and which led to an enormous firefight. There were ultimately 18 Americans killed. The Somali casualties numbered about 1,000. Uh, the uh, episode led to the end of the American involvement in the Horn of Africa. I was the first white guy, frankly, at Crash Site 1 and Crash Site 2. Um, it, was, uh, it was very frightening, to be honest with you. You, uh, you, you went into the middle of uh, Mogadishu in an area called the Bakara Market, also known as the Black Sea, uh, with basically my driver, who was from the right tribe, Habergadir, uh, and my gunman, who was also Habergadir and had this rusty old AK-47. Uh, and we worked our way around. We'd, we'd greased some skids. We worked our way around from crash site one, where uh, the helicopter was completely destroyed to crash site two, where two men had, were subsequently awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously for uh, what they had done there in saving the pilot, Michael Durant. And everywhere we went, we found uh, people saying, oh, you must talk to Colonel Jamali, Colonel Jamali. So we're looking all over the Bakara market for this Colonel Jamali, and we finally found him. And Colonel Jamali, it turns out, was a colonel in the uh, Somali army. He was a military man professionally. First thing he did was he showed me a certificate that he had received signed by a general in the United States Army for exercises that the Somali army had conducted 
with the uh, American army back before Somalia disintegrated. So this man was a real professional, and he described to me in detail how they had set up an arrangement where there were cell phones that uh, alerted uh, the militia when the Americans were coming, as happened on October 3rd, how they had a very uh, pretty sophisticated system set up for when the Americans were entering into this part of Mogadishu. And I said to him, uh, how did you, you know, this is the greatest military power in the history of the world. Uh, you basically have a group of militiamen who don't have shoes. How did you do this? And he said, you were predictable and you were arrogant. Well, that's a lesson in humility. That's a lesson in humility from military history. I went with General Petraeus and the 101st Airborne Division in February of 2003 when the division deployed from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, first to Kuwait, and then eventually uh, into Iraq during the initial invasion. Um, I'd known General Petraeus slightly for uh, some time. Uh, I got to know him very well because I was at his elbow all day, every day, for two months. I'll tell you one episode about Dave, Dave Petraeus, who now, of course, has moved up to four stars. He was in charge of the whole operation in Iraq. Now he's going to be the central command commander. He has Iraq, Afghanistan, that whole part of the world. One day, it was before the war began, we were still in Kuwait, and he was trying to get his stuff off the ships which were coming into Kuwait City. Now the 101st Airborne is not airborne, they don't drop by parachute anymore, they, they, they uh, travel into battle by helicopter. And so he has 256 helicopters, he's trying to get off this succession of ships in order to put them together, in order to be ready in case the, the president decides to go to war, which of course he does about a week later. So we go down to the port and the ship has come in, it's called the Bob Hope. And Petraeus uh, uh, goes onto the ship and he sees what cargo has been brought in. He helps to supervise what's going to be unloaded first. And there's a private, a private first class named Jonathan Aylshire, who's standing next to the ship on the dock. And there's some trash talking that goes on between the 19-year-old PFC Aylshire and the 50-year-old Major General Petraeus. And one thing leads to another and they challenge each other to a push-up contest. Now, General Petraeus is a physical fitness lunatic. PFC Aylshire, 19 years old, in very good shape, paratrooper. So a ring of soldiers forms like in a playground fight. And Petraeus says, here are the rules. Chest touches ground when you go down, fully extended. Head up, eyes forward, just stay with me. So they start counting, all the soldiers, one, two, Three, 14, 15, 16, 25, 26, 27. Aylshire finally collapses. Petraeus does 20 more, pops to his feet without breaking a sweat, says, you can take that off your taxes as part of your education, son. <laughs> we get back to the camp, and there's this sense of a clenched fist getting ready to go out, getting ready to launch into something, and it's clearly going to be war. And Petraeus turned to me and said, tell me how this ends. That was five and a half years ago. Tell me how this ends. That's the right question for that war. It's the right question for every war. 
A lot of the advice you've received in the last couple days is the form of an injunction. Find a life's work, commensurate with your ambition and your talent, and go deep. Take a big cut at it. Go after it. Well, I found my life's work about 10 years ago, and it's called World War II. You say, well, that's been discovered. People know about that. That's not new. That's not like Lisa finding a new neo-quark or whatever. But it's bottomless, and this I realized early on. Like all great stories, it is bottomless. There's more to tell. For one thing, the archive, one scholar has calculated, amounts to 14,000 tons. 14,000 tons of diaries, letters, stuff. No one has ever gone through more than a small portion of it. And if you're willing to work your way through that archive, which is all over the world, in musty archives everywhere, uh, you can find new things, wonderful things. I took, at the beginning of this, the first volume starts in North Africa, which is where the war began. I see this as a triptych, three volumes. North Africa, Sicily, and Italy, 43, 44, and then we'll start where Janusz started, somewhere near uh, Omaha Beach. And I use as sort of my inspiration, and I use as the uh, epigraph to the beginning of volume one of this work, which will be nearly a million words ultimately, a uh, passage from the Iliad, book four, and it goes like this. At last, the armies clashed at one strategic point. They slammed their shields together, pike scraped pike with a grappling strength of fighters armed in bronze, and their round shields pounded boss on welded boss, and the sound of struggle roared and rocked the earth. Well, by trying to go deep on this story, by trying to approximate something that is a classical history, uh, my belief is I can make it new. I'm pretty confident I can make it new. But tell me how this ends. That's the question. How does World War II end? I can't just make up a new ending like Michael Andacic. We know how it ends. Well, about two weeks ago, I found something that I want to tell you about, and uh, we'll call it quits. In a 1946 government-classified monograph called the Army Effects Bureau of the Kansas City Quartermaster Depot. It's a real page turner. <laughs> 400 pages. And it describes how, beginning in early 1942, with six workers in a 300-square-foot room, in the old American Radiator Company on 601 Hardesty Avenue in Kansas City, uh, a, an operation began which by the summer of 1945, between the end of the war in Europe and the ultimate end of the war in the Pacific, had grown to 1,000 people in a huge warehouse. And the effects are the effects of the dead. And they're coming in boxcars every day, and they're brought in and through a very elaborate system. They are very carefully and meticulously sorted out before they are sent to the next of kin. And you have women among these thousands, they're mostly women, with dental tools scraping the blood off of the things that have survived the men who have not. And then they're very carefully boxed up and sent to the widow or the mother or the father as the last pathetic remnants of their son, father, husband, 
who's died among the 290,000 who died. That's how it ends. That's how it ends. It's not how you think it ends. Thanks very much.